Are you guys ready for the word this morning? Well, praise God. We're going to go ahead and continue on in our study into the book of John, and we're going to finish up chapter 6 today. And I want you, as we're going through this, is to imagine if you were in the shoes of those hearing Jesus preach. If you, were those, if you were the same people that were listening to Jesus, because for us, it's really easy to read what's going on and in hindsight, just think they're crazy. Like, man, how could they have been so ignorant? Obviously, this is the Son of God. Obviously, this is the Savior. How could they be so ignorant and, and crazy not to believe? But the, the reality is, is, if you put yourselves in their shoes, you start to see the logic behind of what's going on, right? Put, put yourself in their shoes, and think about the incredibly bold claims that Jesus is making. Jesus had already claimed to be the literal Son of God. He also claimed to be from heaven. He made it clear that he was the Messiah and that he was the only pathway to eternal life. Now imagine you're these people and somebody came and made these claims. What if somebody made these claims today? we would probably react in much the same way. So when we're reading this stuff, I think it's important that we, we're not too critical of them because we have a lot of hindsight. We are in the best position that you can be in to have, we have the greatest revelation that has ever been revealed right now with the word of God written out to us. We know the details. But you gotta imagine these people, they knew him when he was growing up. They knew his parents you know, he was a little boy that they saw running down the street. So imagine if you were in their shoes, how would you react to such a situation? They might even have been impressed with all the things that he had done, right? Maybe his miracles give a little bit of weight. Maybe, maybe the stuff that's happening is going to tip you off, but still you knew him when you were growing up. Imagine how you would feel. And what happens today is they begin complaining in that same way. Listen, how could he be these things? We knew him. We knew his mom. We knew his dad. But Jesus is going to respond to him in a way that leaves them no room for an alternative. Because then, just as now, Jesus requires complete acceptance of his lordship. There's not an alternative. And to attempt to reject his identity or who he is is the same as rejecting his message and his offer of salvation. So you're going to see that response. But be careful before you get too critical of them because think about what they're going through as well. I think sometimes that can help us when we think about this stuff and we're reading it to understand it. But let's go to get started. Verse 41, it says, and this is chapter 6, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So now the Jews that are hearing Jesus preach and speak, they have an issue with what Jesus was declaring. He said that he is the bread that came down from heaven. Joseph spoke about that last week. He was, he was talking about the message that Jesus shared. But not only did he declare that, he declared uh, his origin as well, right? He says, listen, I am from heaven. And this is blowing their minds because they knew who he was. It doesn't make any sense. In addition to declaring that he came down from heaven, he's also declaring that he is their eternal sustenance. 
Like Moses called down bread or manna from heaven and, and their forefathers, their ancestors ate of it and they were able to survive. They were able to be sustained in the desert. In a similar way, Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven that's able to sustain us. With the main difference being that the manna from heaven sustained them for a, a, a definite period of time. But the manna from heaven that is Jesus sustains us for all eternity. Amen. But in this section, the big complaint actually isn't so much about the bread part, at least not yet. We'll get to that in a second. Right now they're saying, how could he say that he is from heaven? Listen, we've known him from birth. We know his parents. We know where he came from. How can he say that he's from heaven? And from their perspective, if, if you think about it, this logic seems sound, right? I mean... This may have been a long time ago, but they still knew how babies were made, right? Came from, from, from Joseph and Mary, that was his parents. But the problem was is that they were ignorant of, of his true origin. They didn't understand the whole thing. They didn't realize that, that, uh, uh, that God was actually his father, that, that Mary was, became pregnant under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They assumed Joseph was his father, but it was actually God his father. So they were ignorant of that fact. They were ignorant that he was actually God come in the flesh. So from their perspective, it seemed logical that how could he be from heaven when he's from Joseph and Mary, but they didn't know all the details. What's more astounding to me, though, is not that these people didn't understand, right? They have a logical line of reasoning to, to how they got there. They're like, listen, he was born from Joseph and Mary. That doesn't make sense that he could come from heaven. But what about people today who reject Jesus and his identity and who he is? We have all the details. We have the story. We know that he was born of a virgin. We understand that he didn't come from Joseph, but he was actually from the Holy Spirit making Mary pregnant. She was a virgin and that he is actually God incarnate. But even with all this information, people still reject his identity today. And when you reject his identity, you're rejecting his message. You're rejecting his offer of salvation. So Jesus responds to them because they're starting to grumble. He says, just says in verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. It's interesting to me that in this response jesus doesn't actually correct their ignorance he instead tells them to stop grumbling you should underline that verse in your bible this is good advice stop grumbling because i don't know if you've recognized this in your own life but grumbling doesn't actually produce any results at least not any successful results at I would say at best, but at worst, when you grumble, it just makes things harder. It just makes your life worse. Don't grumble. Learn to be content with what you have. Receive what God has given you. Take God at his word. 
we're going to see that that's important. We need to understand that, that when God speaks, it's true, whether you like it or agree with it or not. But Jesus wanted to, to, to point out, he didn't correct their ignorance, but what he did do is say, listen, you need to understand, if you want to know me, you've got to go to God. You need to hear from God to understand who I am. He's the one that's the source. He's the one that would draw them to him. In order to understand and grasp the identity of Jesus, we need to look to God to make sure that we're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he ministers to us. Because the reality is that without God, without the ministering of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to accurately assess who Jesus is. Because salvation requires active participation by God. No one can be saved without God drawing them in. No one can be saved without the Holy Spirit ministering to them. That's actually why the Bible says that the Holy Spirit's, uh, one of his primary purposes is to convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. In John 16, 17, 7 through 11, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus speaking. It says, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. I want you to notice, it doesn't say concerning sin, he's going to point out everybody's failures. He's going to point out their need for a savior. That's how he convicts the world concerning sin. That yes, you have sin, you need a savior. Next, it says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Next, he's going to point out that Jesus made a way. What, 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 what did we know when Jesus left and went to the Father? That he was successful, right? He went to heaven, he sat down on the right, on the right hand of God and said, it is finished. So we know that when Jesus comes, so that's the second thing. First, he convicts the world concerning sin because we need a Savior. He convicts the world concerning righteousness because Jesus has done the work to make us righteous. And then finally, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. We learn two things. That one, that, that the, the ruler of this world is already judged and Jesus is victorious. And two, that if you're in him, you don't fall into judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit's purpose is. He plays a, 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 a vital role in salvation. So in order to be saved, in order to judge Jesus correctly, we need the influence of God, the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompts us to look to Jesus because we need a Savior. But I think one of the things that we, we have to be careful of is that when we read this is that some people get the wrong idea, right? They say, okay, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we think, oh no, what if I'm not one of those that God draws? You see, some people think that there's only a subset of people that God is looking to draw in, and everybody else is just out of luck, I guess. So we can make the mistake of reading stuff like this and interpreting that as, is that, oh no, there's only a certain amount of people that God will draw. The, the statement is true, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But the Father draws everyone. And this isn't just a feeling I have. I, you know, I, I'm not just going, oh, it just wouldn't be right if he didn't. In John 12, 32, we'll see this here in probably a, a, a few months. It says, and when I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from earth, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. How many people? All people. Not just some people. The drawing is happening to everybody. 
Peter said this, and we know this of God in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how many does, does God want to perish? Nobody. So this, this drawing of God goes to everybody. The Holy Spirit is ministering to everybody. The difference is, are you listening? See, right, that's what he says here. It's written in the prophets, they will be, all be taught by God, and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Problem is that some people hear and they ignore, or some people are so distracted or so wrapped up in themselves, they don't even hear anymore. But the Holy Spirit is speaking to everybody, drawing them in. There's a requirement that the, the scripture says we'll all be taught by God, but the requirement is that we learn. That means you have to listen. But then Jesus makes it clear. I do want to make clear that not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. Even though that we're to, to listen to the Holy Spirit and to learn from the Holy Spirit and God is drawing us to him Jesus is saying that still doesn't mean you've seen the Father. Don't, don't misunderstand me, is what he's saying. Because there's only one who's seen the Father, and that is him. And we also see that this is the same thing that, that was taught in the very beginning of this book in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's uh, the only God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And that's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one that's seen the Father. Jesus is the one that is actually creating a bridge so that we can have a relationship with the Father. Amen. And then Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is in verse 47. And I was looking at this, and I'm like, man, what a concise, yet ultimately true statement about the reality of a christian this 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 sums up christianity like if you could say what is what is one statement that describes christianity just give him this verse whoever believes has eternal life and you'll notice it says truly truly in front of that anytime you see jesus saying truly truly different translations say it uh, say it's slightly different but the point is is here is, is he's making an emphasis this is true like Everything else Jesus says is true as well, but he wants to emphasize this is like really true. Like you need to get this. Whoever believes has eternal life. And it's, it's an amazing because it's such a concise statement of what Christianity is, but it's such a different way to view obtaining eternal life. And when I say that, I mean it's different today just as it was different back then. But Jesus is making clear belief is the the, the determiner of your eternal position. And the word here that's used doesn't just mean this one-time belief, right? I am uh, learning Spanish right now. And they have like a gabillion conjugations. But they have two different past tense. Um, they're called, I think they're called uh, moods or something like that. But there's two different past tense. And uh, the best way to describe them is one is a dot in the past. Like I drank a glass of milk, right? That's a dot in the past. I drank it. It was done. But then there's also one to describe um, uh, uh, a line in the past would be the other way to describe it, right? So you can conjugate a verb another way. And, and that would be something like, uh, um, I was running. 
when I was in high school. There's, it's, it's not something you started and ended. It's something you were always doing, right? So when I'm reading this, I'm thinking about that, this, this idea of believing. It's not, it's not a dot in the past. It wasn't like I believed one day and it was, it, was, it was said and done. I signed my name on the line and now I can do whatever I want. This not only is a line in the past, but it continues into the future. This is an idea of continual belief. So he says, whoever believes, that means that you believed and you continue to believe you have eternal life. And this is different from what the Jews experienced because for the Jews, their eternity, their salvation, if you will, um, depending on how well they observed the law, right? It was their actions that ultimately determined their outcome, or at least as they understood it. We know that the plan was always Jesus, and even for the Jews that are saved, they were still looking towards Jesus. But as far as they understood it, it was their outcome, their behavior that ensured that they were right with God. And even in, in, when we look at substitutionary atonement through the sacrifices they did, that still even required their act of participation. The sacrifice happened, but they had to bring the sacrifice. They had to go to the priest. Like Everything was involved with what you did to make sure that you were okay, right? In addition, every other religion in the world except Christianity is based on this logic. That's, if anybody ever asked you what's the difference between Christianity and everything else, every other religion in the world is about how you can do something to make it to God. Christianity is about how God came to you to make it so that you could come to him. There's a massive difference, but every other religion, including Judaism, is about what you can do to make it to God. But this is different. Jesus says, no, it's not like that. It's belief that secures your eternal life. Your, your eternity is not dependent on your actions, but it's dependent on your faith. This is actually one of the primary themes in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But what I love about this, the beauty of this, is that when you have that, that saving faith, when you have genuine faith, the outcome is a life that's lived in accordance with God's laws because you are changed, you're made brand new. And when you trust in him and your faith is in him, naturally your life begins to change. Naturally we see evidence of, all those, uh, of, of what God is doing in you. And we see that your life will naturally be lived in accordance with the will and the words of God. Amen. But it's not that living that secures your salvation. It's actually putting faith in God that, that secures salvation and, and, and a supernatural transformation inside of you that naturally leads to you living who you are now in Him. Amen. And after this, he goes on in verse 48 through 51 he says i am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die i am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life of the world is my flesh so jesus repeats the declaration he made earlier in the chapter and he says, I am the bread of life. And this is actually one of several I am statements that is recorded in John's gospel where Jesus, cut and dry, declares who he is. He says, this is who I am. 
John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 9, he once again says, I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 14, again, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. And once again in John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine. Jesus is very clearly demonstrating who he is to the people around him. And here he's saying, I am the bread of life. And when Jesus is referring to this, uh, the bread that he's referring to is not food. He's actually referring to a person. He's referring to himself. And as a result, Jesus actually becomes our necessary food for survival, for sustenance. And the interesting thing is when we read this today, it doesn't carry as much weight as it would have carried back then. I have been uh, back into the keto diet again. I don't eat any bread, yet I'm able to, to survive and be sustained just fine. But back then, bread was a staple of their life. Bread was everything. If you didn't have bread, you starved. That's just how it was. Bread was one of the primary food sources that they had. So they would understand that this bread is necessary for survival. It doesn't carry the same weight back then, but we need to understand the weight that it did carry so we can understand what Jesus is saying. This is not, not uh, you know, something we really like, and oh, I hope it's sourdough because that's my favorite. This was necessary for survival. So Jesus being our bread is the same saying as he is our sustenance. He is what sustains us, and not just for a temporary time, but for eternity. When Moses called bread down from heaven, Jesus is blunt. He <laughs> says, look, they ate the manna, and they died. Now, he didn't mean the manna killed them, just in case anybody was, is wondering. But they did eventually die. Amen. So they, they ate the manna, the, the, the bread that came down from heaven, but they did eventually die. But if you eat the bread of life, the bread that Jesus was referring to, the bread that is his own flesh, you will see that you will not die. The manna from heaven had limits to its ability to sustain. But the bread of life, Jesus Christ, has no limits in its ability to sustain. It sustains eternally. But then now we get to the big Weird question. What does it mean to eat his flesh? This is actually a figure of speech. To eat his flesh, it doesn't mean that somehow we're pulling up a fork and knife and going to town on Jesus. This is a figure of speech. Much like he used figures of speech when saying that they must come to him in verse 35. Or in verse 30 when it says they must, uh, verse 40 when it says they must look on him. It doesn't mean that if you want to be saved, you can just find a picture of Jesus and stare at it. It's not about looking on him in that sense. It's a figure of speech, right? That means that you have to look at him for your sustenance. Really, it's the same, the same thing, essentially. Same thing when you have to come to him. You know, you just, everybody that walked up to Jesus that, that physically came to him did not get saved. So he wasn't talking about just coming. There was more to it. It was a figure of speech. Same here. I will give the life of the world that is my flesh. This is a figure of speech. We don't actually have to eat his flesh. What he's doing is letting us know that we must depend on him for sustenance. Just as one depends on food to survive. 
It's this idea of putting your trust and faith in him and understanding that it is a requirement that you must do so if you want to live. It's not an option. And then Jesus explains more fully that he is giving himself, his body, his flesh for the life of the world. Now, in hindsight for us, we can put two and two together, right? We've had 2,000 years to connect the dots. He's speaking of his crucifixion where he gave his life, he gave his body for us so that we could have eternal life. Amen? But imagine being in this place. In verse 52, it says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true, blood, true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So they've just heard the crazy stuff that Jesus was saying. And when I say crazy, I, I want, to be clear, I'm talking from a humanly perspective. If God says it, it's not crazy. Everyone understand what I'm saying? <laughs> but from their perspective, Jesus is talking some silly stuff. He's saying, I got to eat, eat, eat his flesh and all this stuff. But per usual, they're misunderstanding what Jesus was saying. So they're taking his statements literally. And yeah, if you take the statements literally, this is kind of bonkers. And then some read this, and you know, they would make the argument, oh, this is, this is, uh, there, there are some uh, sections of Christianity that believe that when you receive communion, that you're literally, that, that when, you, when you take the bread, it literally turns into the, to the flesh of Christ. And when you drink the blood, it, it lit- or drink the cup, it literally turns into Jesus' blood. They, they, they believe this. And, and they... they Put it together with the Last Supper, right? When Jesus says, you must take my, bre- uh, my body, this, the bread is my body and the, the, the cup is my blood. But there's one small problem with this idea that this is what he's talking about here is, is historically, this happens about a year before commun- the Last Supper is instituted. So it would seem to me strange that we could use this as an argument for something that doesn't happen for another year. When What's really happening is both of them are a figure of speech about putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross where he he broke his body and shed his blood so that we could have forgiveness of sins and a new life. Amen? The language here and the language in the, the Last Supper are both figurative. In this case, to eat and to drink is to believe on him and what he did. It means that we believe... He is who he says he is, and we believe that he did what he said he did. Amen? And it is only believing in him and his sacrifice on the cross that we may obtain eternal life. That's what it says. When we feed on his flesh and drink on his blood, that means that when we believe in him, we're abiding in him. Amen? And his food, his drink, is the only thing capable of providing eternal sustenance the only thing capable of ensuring that we live forever in eternity. And in verse 57, it says, As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So Jesus is actually teaching this lesson to those in Capernaum um, in the synagogue there. And it, it seems that, that back then, when you went to synagogue, it was structured a little bit more loosely than it would be today. Like, um, if you want to preach in this church, you don't just get to show up. <laughs> and the main reason for that is because I'm accountable for what anybody says up here, and uh, I'm accountable to God for that, then I need to make sure that I know what they're going to say because if they come up here and, and say something silly and unbiblical and they, and they influence any one of you, then I'm accountable for that. But the, the culture back then was much different. If you attended a synagogue, um, Jesus was able to speak because they gave people the opportunity to share in, in these synagogues. So this was his custom to attend the synagogue wherever he went, and he, he taught them wherever he went. And when he's there, Jesus uses his relationship with the Father to describe the relationship that we have with him. He says this, he says, listen, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So Jesus says, I live because of the Father, we live because of Jesus. This is the, the language that he's using to, and using this opportunity to share how all of us relate together in the body of Christ. And it's, it's very much the same imagery that he uses in John 15, 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We see this picture that the only way to have life is to be connected to the vine. You have to abide in the vine. If you're disconnected from the vine, you can't produce fruit. You don't have any life in you. The same thing is here. Jesus has life. He's the source of life because he's connected to the Father. But if we're not connected to him, then we have no life. If we want to live, we must be connected to him. Amen? In him, we live forever. But apart from him, we die. That's the, the two options. And then in verse 60, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is one of those things where it's real easy for us to go, don't they know they're talking to Jesus? I would never say that to Jesus. The thing is, remember where they're coming from. We've got to be real careful about how we view that stuff, or we'll find ourselves in the, own situ the same situation. So the disciples that are being spoken of here are not the 12 disciples. This is the multitude of disciples that are following after Jesus. And when they heard these words of Jesus, they began to take offense. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know which words they're taking offense at. It's not real clear to me what they're offended at. I can't tell if they're offended at having to eat and drink Jesus, uh, eat, eat his flesh and drink his blood literally. Like, is that what they're offended at? Or... Do they understand what Jesus is trying to say, that he is the Son of God, that he is salvation, that he is the, the only one where you can obtain eternal life, and, and they're offended at that? The truth is, from a Jewish background, equally offended at both options, I think. So I'm not sure if they understand and they're offended, or they don't understand and they're offended, but either way, they are offended. And here's the thing. If you've been here, you've heard me say it. 
technology changes, but people don't. People have been the same throughout the ages. And there are so many people today that take offense at the Bible. They take offense at the principles expressed in the Bible. They take offense at the decisions God makes and how he rules this world and how he rules over all creation. We see it, and, we, and, and when I say we, I'm talking as a people collectively, not the church, not us here, but as, as, as humans, we tend to, to become offended at all these things that God is saying. Today, and particularly in the U.S., our culture takes offense when the Bible says that we should consider others as more important than ourselves. Now, people would argue that, no, that, that sounds good. I don't take offense to that. But, but if you tell somebody to focus on somebody else and not themselves, then they get offended. No, I have to look out for number one. You know, if I'm not happy, then, then how can I help anybody? You know, all this stuff. The Bible, doesn't say, the Bible says treat others as more important than yourself. And ultimately, even, if they don't, even though that sounds good, they live their life in such a way that they're offended by that, that, uh, that, that command. They take offense that they perceive that God allows evil in this world. So many, how could, God, how could a good God allow evil to happen in this world? Ironically, the very same people take offense when in the Bible God judged entire nations. I don't know how you can have it both ways. I can't believe God's allowing evil. God's like, okay, I'm going to punish the evil. I can't believe God would punish all those people. You can't, you got to have one or the other. You can't have both. Pick one. They take offense that God would prescribe sexual relationships to be exclusive to marriage and that marriage would be exclusive to a man and a woman. They take offense at that. That just uh, really drives people crazy in, in, in our culture today that, that uh, uh, sexuality is, is not what they want it to be. They take offense that life should be valued and protected even in the womb. They take offense that God has ordained only one way to be saved. And the list goes on. We must be careful not to be offended by what the Word of God says. We don't get to pick and choose. There was, uh, you guys remember the progressive commercials with Flo and she was in that like checkout line and she could scan different parts of the insurance. Remember the progressive? Somebody made a joke video about uh, uh, Christianity being like that. It was progressive Christianity where you could go through the line and pick out which parts of Christianity you wanted. It doesn't work like that. We have to be obedient to all of God's word. We don't get to pick and choose. So we have to be careful not to be offended at God's word, even if it, if it may not seem sensible to us. Or if we don't like it. Because first, we lack the complete picture. We, we, we are unable to fully understand the reasoning behind the things that God does at times because we lack the complete picture. We don't have complete knowledge like He has. And second, and I think this is the most important reason that we should listen to God, no matter what it is, is He's God. Right? He's God. Full stop. That's what it is. That's why we should listen to God. One of my favorite things that I heard Francis Chan say, and I think it's, it's, it was Francis Chan that said this. He said, uh, if the Bible said that all Chinese people had to stand on their heads at all times, I wouldn't like it, but I would do it. Because it's what God said. Why? 
there are some stuff in the Bible that many people think are unreasonable. So why do we do it anyway? One, because he's God. And we know that because he's God, he is good, he is faithful, he is righteous, he is perfect, he is pure. So that means that if he tells us something because of his nature, whatever he's telling us is righteous, it's perfect, it's pure, it's good. So whatever the Bible says, we obey because he wouldn't put it there if it was wrong. Amen? It is beneficial. But then after this, Jesus knew about the disciples grumbling. In verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So I'm guessing at least part of what they were grumbling about was where Jesus was, said he was coming from. They, they were grumbling about him uh, uh, saying he was from heaven. So he asked, do you take offense at this? You take offense that I say that I'm from heaven? Well, what, what, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending back to heaven? Would you still take offense? What if it proves true that I am from heaven? Would you still be offended at what I'm trying to say? And this is an interesting question to me because most of us when we read this, we go, no, of course not. If it was proven to me true, then of course I would believe. But here's the thing. Today, many wouldn't believe even if we could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. One of the questions that I would recommend to you if somebody wants to debate with you about apologetics or the legitimacy of the Bible or the legitimacy of, of Christianity, one of the questions you need to ask them right up front to get out of the way is say, listen, if I could prove to you that Christianity was true, like if we knew right now that Christianity was a true, would you become a Christian? If they answer in any other way than yes then they're not actually looking for the truth. They're not looking for the truth. They're actually looking for a way to disprove that it's the truth so that way they continue living how they want to live. Some people are so wrapped up in wanting to live how they want to live that they're willing to reject God and his provision and his, his, uh, his guidance and his commandments because they would rather do what they're doing than follow the living God. They're offended by the requirements that God has which is obedience, which means focusing uh, outward instead of focusing inward. To be obedient to God means you focus outward, you focus on Him, you focus on loving others. But many people want to live a life where they're focused inward solely on themselves, what's in it for them. But he goes on in verse 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and, it was, uh, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Here's the deal. The words that Jesus spoke were true. That's all there is to it. He says, these words that I have, they're spirit and life. These words are true. There's no way around it. And these words were not going to be any less true if Jesus all of a sudden ascended to heaven right in front of them and demonstrated the evidence, or he did not. You see, the, the words of Jesus don't rely on evidence to be true. They are true because they're his words. He is God. They don't require anything else. 
It's the Spirit of God who gives life, and there's nothing that we personally will do that will ever result in us having eternal life. It's all about what he did, the words that he says, and nothing that we do. And what I, what I mean by that is, is if they did see him raised to heaven, that wouldn't change the truthfulness of his words. And knowing that wouldn't change that you still have to believe in him. So Jesus declares that what I am speaking, the very thing that you're being all offended over, is what will bring you life. And they're true whether or not you believe them or not. You see, another way to say that is God's word is not dependent on the world believing it to be true. It's not like, uh, you guys seen the movie Elf? with uh, Who's the main guy in Elf? I forget his name. Will Ferrell, you remember that one? Remember at the end, Santa couldn't fly because enough people didn't believe? You see, Santa's power, Santa's uh, ability to fly was dependent on how many people believe in him. That's not how God works. Not a single person in the entire world could ever believe in God and his word wouldn't be any less true. It's not dependent on us to be true. But here's the thing, even though that's the case, it says, many did not believe. And this wasn't a shock to Jesus. He knew this was coming. And then finally, Jesus repeats what he had said earlier. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And once again, we get to that scary thing. Wait a minute. It says he knew there were some to believe. This is why he said no one could come to him because, because uh, they have to be permitted by the Father. And we can get wrapped up in this idea that the, the, the reason they didn't believe is because God didn't grant them the right. So that means some people don't have the right and they just don't have a choice and we can get wrapped up in this. And the truth is, is there are sections of Christianity that believe this way. But I think to clarify this in our head, we just simply have to read what it says. So we know one thing. There will be some who are not permitted to come to Jesus by God. That's a true statement, right? That's what it says. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. There will be some that are not permitted to come to him by the Father. We know that's true. And we can't argue with it because that's plain as day in the Word. So the question is, that's really scary unless we try to figure out what is Jesus trying to say, and he answers it in the thing. Why are they not permitted? He says, listen, there are some of you who do not believe this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. In order to be permitted to come to Jesus by the Father, you have to believe. If you don't believe, you're not permitted to come to Jesus by the Father. That is the requirement. That is the, 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 the line in the sand. So they're not, he's not saying that some people aren't allowed to believe. He's saying that some people don't believe, so they're not permitted to come to the Father. And if you read that, if, I'm, if you've ever been confused by this, and I just explained that to you, you're like, Wait a minute, that makes sense. It's actually what it says if I'm reading this. What's the problem? There are some of you who don't believe, and this is why. He literally says, this is why. I told you this because you wouldn't believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me to the Father unless it's permitted. Because if you don't believe, you're not permitted to come to the Father. There isn't some predetermined list of people that are allowed to come to Jesus or be saved. It is made available to everybody. You only must believe. That's always been the requirement is to put faith in him, and it's available to all. And as we said earlier, God does play an active role in salvation. 
We put our faith in him, and at that moment, as we put our faith in him as a response to his word and as a response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit convicting us, we put our faith in him at that moment, a supernatural change takes place. It's not simply a logical decision we make. And I want to be clear, you do have to make a decision, but it's a response to what the Spirit of God is saying to you. It's not solely logic and reason. You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live this way and, and, and now I'm going to follow all the rules. That's every other religion. This religion is about God who came to us to make a change in us. And the Holy Spirit is convicting all. But if they don't listen to him, if they reject his prompting, then they are not permitted to, to come to Jesus. They have to respond to the Holy Spirit and believe. They have to respond to his word and believe. If you don't respond, if you don't believe, then you're not permitted to participate in salvation nor eternal life. This is why I believe that the eternal sin, the only sin you cannot be forgiven from, is not being saved, not putting your trust in Jesus. Because what does Jesus say if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? What does that mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, that's when the Holy Spirit is, is, is speaking to you and convicting you for sin, that you need a Savior, that, that, that Jesus is a way. It's when you turn to him and say, you're a liar. I don't believe you. That's what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. That's the unforgivable sin. When you call the Holy Spirit a liar, and you have until the, the day of your last breath to go ahead and believe and to trust. And that's why it's so important because we don't know when the day of our last breath is and you do not want to die in the position of calling the Holy Spirit a liar because he's talking to you. He's ministering to you. But if you don't hear him, if you don't listen, if you don't respond, then you're in a bad place. And then in John 6, verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This began a turning point in Jesus' ministry where people's perception of Jesus begins to change. They were beginning to understand that he's not going to be the political savior that they expected him to be, that they wanted him to be. You see, in their minds, their current situation under the Romans, being oppressed by the Romans, was about the worst thing that could ever happen. And they were looking for that, that, uh, that general that was going to come save them, free them from, from the oppression of the Romans. And this point of time in their life, having that fixed, was more important than their eternal life. They didn't even realize they were making that decision. They had a distorted view of the priorities that they should have in their life. And so many people have that today still. They have a distorted view of what should be their priority. They're so focused on me in the right now that they're unwilling to surrender to him. Knowing that this little me right now is such a small blip in your life in comparison to eternity. So many of his disciples, those of whom I would... I would I classify myself as, as maybe more followers than actual disciples. You know, those were the ones, they were just in it for what they could get. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the signs. They wanted Jesus to ride in on a giant white horse and just knock out the, the uh, uh, Caesars and, and all of those and just free them. That's what they were looking They were looking for something. But the disciples, they're looking to walk with him. There's a difference. So they, this camp, they just, they walked away. 
miracle and freedoms from Roman oppression was all they uh, oppression was all they cared about. And it's too bad they couldn't see past their current circumstances and understand the amazing gift that was being offered to them at that moment. And in verse 67, it says, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So after the multitude complains and many of them walk away, Jesus turns to his closest disciples, the 12 disciples, the ones that he handpicked and said, follow me. And he says, do you want to go away as well? He's asking them, is what I'm saying, is it too much for you? Do these things offend you as well? You know, when we're looking at the Bible and we want to pick and choose what we want to believe, that's the question that's being asked. Do you want to be obedient to my entire word, to, to everything that I say, or do you want to go away as well? And Peter responds to Jesus, and, and uh, we can probably assume that he's speaking for the group, right? And he says, uh, to whom would we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the, see, they got it. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They saw past the, the little things that Jesus was saying, and they weren't offended that, that uh, there wasn't going to be a, a political reformation. It was going to be eternal salvation. They said, listen, we're interested in that. You're the one with the words of eternal life, and, and it looks like they have it. They knew that he was Lord. And then we'll finish up here today. And it's kind of an odd place to end, but it's where the chapter ends, so that's where we're going to cut it. But it says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he knew, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You see, it turns out that Peter, although he thought he was speaking for all the disciples, turns out he wasn't actually. You see, Jesus responds, or Peter says, no, where would we go? We, we, we believe you, Jesus. And, and Jesus kind of gives them a hint. says, yeah. But did I not choose you? Yet one of you is the devil. Peter didn't realize that there was one of him that didn't believe the same way that he believed, that didn't believe as the others. But we know something that Peter did not. Jesus knew something that Peter did not. And that was that Judas did not really believe. And that Judas would be the one who betrayed him. Church, as we've looked at this stuff today, I want to encourage you to be obedient to his word even if it's complicated, even if it's hard, even if you, you don't understand it fully, know this, that one, whatever he says is true, whether you want to believe it or not, he is God. And whatever he asks us to do, it's because uh, it's for our benefit. Whatever God says, whatever God does, he does it from his nature, and he is good, he is right, he is perfect, he is pure, and we can trust anything that he says. And we need to make sure that we are obedient to everything that he says and don't find ourselves in the camp of being offended at his word, causing us to walk away. Amen.